0: Welcome to Nancy's Bookshelf, a weekly program of conversations with North State and national writers from North State Public Radio. Now here's your host, Nancy Wickman.
1: My guest today is a Vietnam veteran, a salsa maker known as Senor Felipe, an author, and the radio host of L.A. Sounds on KZFR in Chico. Philip Elkins described his year in Vietnam in a previous book. Today, I'll ask him about his post-war life, as told in his book, Coming Home from the War. Phil Elkins, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Nancy. Nice to be here. Yeah, your first book was Running from the Fire, and that was about growing up in East L.A. So why don't you fill in your life before this book we're going to be talking about today, about Coming Home? Sure. Okay, well,
0: my parents immigrated from Ukraine and wound up in East LA, where I grew up. I was a fourth of four boys. And when we got there, it was rapidly changing from what had been a Jewish community into the largest Latino community anywhere outside of Mexico City. So I grew up with all Latino friends and I tried to pass, and that's how I became Senor Felipe. I had friends that we all had nicknames and that was one of mine I had others as well but then uh, after high school I uh, was working at a factory not exactly sure what to do I was going to East LA College and uh, not doing that well and I was on academic probation and then I got my draft notice and they gave me 10 days to report to the U.S. Army. And I uh, thought, well, I guess I got to drop out of school, even though it was a 15-week, 18-week uh, semester at East Delhi College. So they said, well, you want credit. You could get credit and take your finals early. <laughs> I said, uh, I don't think so. I was flunking out anyway. So anyway, I got drafted. And... Uh, that was in January fourth, nineteen 1966, and spent two years in the Army, including one year in Vietnam as a medic with the first Cav up in the central highlands of Vietnam. So you grew up in East
1: L.A., and those of us who may not be familiar with the various sections of L.A., tell us again what East L.A., what characterized East L.A. back in those days?
0: Well, it was a a, a neighborhood what wasn't very well off, and people uh, pretty much were happy to get a job, including my father. The best job my father ever had was as a custodian. He loved it. And uh, pretty much you had to have a group of friends to back you up, So, because the other neighborhoods, they were, you know, groups of people considered gangs, and they would ask you, where are you from? And you had to say either nowhere, which means you weren't in a gang, or you had to name a gang, and it was very uh, dangerous. And as a matter of fact, my girlfriend, my first girlfriend who I met when I was 14 years old, I called her Rochelle. Um, She was in a family, her two brothers were in a gang, and the neighborhood gang killed her brother. And her brother, you know, had another brother, and they went after him, and she knew who it was. And she happened to be my girlfriend. So she was staying away from home, and eventually they caught up with her and killed her as well. So we moved out of that neighborhood for about a year, and then we moved back, and then I got drafted and uh, had to survive Vietnam. And when I got home, I got involved with another lady, who uh, I was with before, and we were young and had a baby and put it up for adoption. So that is all explained in this book, coming home from the war in Vietnam. And it was uh, pretty chaotic, but I had a, a very very good best friend named I call him Alex, and he when I. When I got drafted, he joined the Army. When I went to Vietnam, he joined, he volunteered for Vietnam. We were in Vietnam at the same time. And when I got home, he got home, and he he was pretty wild and crazy and got in a lot of trouble, got strung out on drugs, and died when he was young.
1: Well, now, this happens later in your book that you tell us what yes. became of Alex. Yeah. But when you were growing up, uh, you actually really liked your parents' house. There's a section in your book where you say it was the best house and the best, you had <laughs> about six bests. And what are those things that you listed that you thought were the best?
0: Well, I figured it was the best country in the world and LA was the best city in the world. And, you know, our street in East LA was the best street and we had the best house and I had the best parents and I had a you know, terrific life, I thought. You know, although I found out later that, you know, that wasn't really true, but that's how I felt about it. And I guess I thought I was happy. But uh do you know,
1: so many people I know of your age group had fathers that were so harsh, that beat them. Oh. Oh, yeah. And you just listed in the best. You listed your parents. And we as readers come to love your parents, too, including your dad. And dads oh, yeah. in those days weren't always... Uh, sympathetic, uh, played a sympathetic role in a young man's life. So I think you were lucky, Phil.
0: I, I Everybody loved my dad. Everybody loved my dad. And they all called him by his name, Nate, including I called him Nate. And people said, isn't he your father? Yes, he's my father. But my mother called him Nate and my three older brothers. And so it took me years to realize, oh, I should call him dad. And it never <laughs> felt quite right. But everybody loved my dad, except my mother. (laughs) And so that was an unhappy household. And it caused a lot of, uh, you know, tension. But, you know, at the time when you're a kid, you feel secure. So uh, everybody, I loved my dad. And he was was a nice, hardworking man and loved my mother like crazy. But, you know, they were not happily married.
1: My so, guest well,
0: is in the household.
1: Chico author and salsa maker, and his name is Phil Elkins. His first book was about growing up in East L.A., and the title of that book was Running from the Fire. He wrote a second book about his year at Vietnam, how he managed to survive from June 1966 to June 1967. Now, Phil, yes. you, your your descriptions of what going on in those periods took me back to those years. Uh-huh. For example, I graduated uh, from college and I took off a year before I went to graduate school. Uh-huh. That year happened to have been nineteen sixty seven. So my yeah. undergraduate uh, education, we wore the puffy hairdos and everything in place, <laughs> and right. then. A year later, I go off to a, a, a different university, and they were wearing long hair and uh, <laughs> bell bottoms. And I thought, my <laughs> gosh, these two schools, these two universities, are so different. But oh, oh yeah, when oh, I yeah. was reading yours, I thought, oh my goodness, 1967 was quite a year. And what was this? Was the year you got out of the army in 1967,
0: and what did you come home to in 1967, Phil? Well. I got home from Vietnam. It was June 1967, and we landed in Travis Air Force Base. And I had to get a flight out of uh, San Francisco, and it would happen to be the Summer of Love. So my uncle Monty picks me up in San Francisco at the airport and says, "You got to see hay Ashbury." And I'm walking up and down the street, and he wants me to wear my uniform. And these hippies are saying, "Hey." make love not war what are you doing in that army uniform why don't you join us and they're all long haired and you know playing music and singing and, and you know they're hardly wearing any clothes and they're out there smoking pot where i grew up in east l.a you know a lot of people smoke pot were you know the tough cholos and stuff and here are these middle class blonde blue-eyed hippies they're out smoking pot and, and telling I, you
1: get out of that uniform phil <laughs> and <Yeah>. did
0: you? <laughs> well, I wanted to, but my my uncle, he wanted me to stay in San Francisco and start selling insurance that he was selling, <laughs> well, <laughs> the last thing in the world I wanted to do was that. So, he uh he finally, you know, I went home and my I, I got to LA. And there were hippies there too. We were hanging out in Venice Beach, you know, and then I went to a love in Griffith Park. And there's tens of thousands of hippies out there running around, smoking pot, singing. And then there's a a live band up at the American Ground. And lo and behold, it's the doors. And there's Jim Morrison up there singing and yelling and screaming and cussing. (laughs) And the cops broke the whole thing up. And it was, you know, so very different.
1: You described yeah. this, Phil, like, yeah, sure. I went to the Love Inn and I knew who Jim Morrison was. I knew who the doors were. Right. Right. But that was
0: not the case. Oh, it was so different. It was so different. But I still had another five and a half months to do the army. So but, I got But you, they couldn't believe, what? You don't know who the doors are? You had to ask the doors, <laughs> who's that? And they thought, gosh,
1: what planet did this guy come from? He doesn't know the doors.
0: <laughs> I, I told the people I met. That i just got back from vietnam and they looked at me like i was from another planet why did you go to vietnam what did you do yes why? they
1: wonder why did you so phil why did you go to vietnam you didn't want to go you didn't go because you wanted to so no, I why didn't. did you go why did you do that
0: you know it's very interesting i was just talking to my girlfriend who happens to be named nancy this morning and i registered for the draft when i turned 18 and i wondered if I didn't, if, you know, back then there was not a lot of computers and stuff, if so I would have got away with it. But they threatened me with five years in prison and a big fine if you don't go into the Army. And so I thought I had no choice. Five I in, years in prison. Yeah, 18 years old. And I got drafted at 90. And so I thought, okay, what's worse? Five years in prison or going in the Army. So I'm hoping for the best. Well, within five and a half months, I was sent to Vietnam as a medic and uh i had no idea what it was going to be like but you know i survived it somehow
1: well it sounds like though as a medic you did have a little bit have it a little bit easier than yeah. people who uh soldiers who were not medics and
0: absolutely
1: yeah, yeah. i uh, enjoyed reading about uh, your assignment as a medic, you had it pretty cushy. You got to um, be funny.
0: You got to entertain these yeah.
1: soldiers with your humor. Yes,
0: uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I was a preventive medicine specialist and my job was to go around the country and inform the troops how to avoid getting the plague and malaria and venereal disease. And, and you know, they don't want to hear any of that. They just you know, want to go home like everybody else and so I realized okay if you make them listen you got to entertain them so I would make up little funny stories and jokes and and lo and behold the people in charge liked what I did so they sent me all over the country to do this well I uh you know I was lucky and then when when they didn't have anything for me to do they said just lay low I thought okay I know how to do that so I would, you know, depending upon where I was, for a long time was up in the central highlands. And there was a place up there called Sin City, which is a government run uh, place where you could meet girls in the bars. And, you know, that was okay. But then after a while, they sent me down south to Saigon. And when they said, okay, Leilo, I I met some people and I I got to work in a, uh, orphanage. And I met this girl named Lily, and I got to hang out with her and meet her family and stuff. And, you know, I, I really got to like the people and the food and the culture. And so I, I was lucky that I got that position. I don't know how that happened because, you know, I could have been a, a combat medic and been out in the field all the time, and, and I, I didn't have to do that. But still, You know, I had to be there, and it was not exactly a safe place to be. We got hit all the time with mortars. You know, no matter where you are, things were happening. You have to be careful what, you know, where you are and what you're doing. So it was, It was. you know, my girlfriend often says, well, you know, you probably must have matured a lot. And I said, I didn't feel like I did. (laughs) I just wanted to go home.
1: My guest is Philip Elkins. He's a Chico author whose book is Coming Home from the War in Vietnam. We'll be back to continue our conversation after a short break. You're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm Nancy Wigman. Nancy Wigman, and you're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm back with my guest, Vietnam War veteran Philip Elkins, and he's written a memoir in three books, really. His first book was Running from the Fire, about growing up in East L.A. His second book, His Year in Vietnam, How He Managed to Survive, June 1966 to June 1967, and he now has Coming Home from the War in Vietnam. And the cover of your book, Phil, it, we can look at that cover and see, oh yeah, we know what uh, what things were like in the day he came home, the days he came home. So describe Morning. the cover of your book, that photograph on your cover, Okay, Phil.
0: well, there's me in my 1965 Volkswagen full of flowers and on the rear windows, I wrote in crayon, and fluorescent colors, spread love on one side, and the other side, I wrote "Get it together."
1: <laughs> and, and you had flowers on your little VW.
0: Yeah. and you grown a, a beard and a hair. Yeah, long. yeah, beard, and mustache. <laughs> and your you hair have... wasn't
1: as long in this photograph as it got later. Oh, you my. looked rather neat there, but <laughs> but as I said, this took me back because. I had a little VW bug. Mine happened to be in 1966, but Uh I adored that little bug. Oh,
0: yeah. And so you
1: brought back pleasant memories of uh, having that that little car. Oh,
0: yeah. And wherever I went, people gave me a peace sign. They wanted to meet me, and they come up to me and want me to hang out with them. You know, it was just the beginning of the hippie movement. And, and. you know, the, the music was fantastic, and everybody was friendly. It was so different from the way I grew up in East L.A., even though I was back in L.A., but it, it was completely different. And, and, you know, people just were, we thought we were going to change the world, you know, yeah. with music, rock and roll, and, you know, we were going we to make the revolution happen. And, well, and you I got completely into it.
1: After you flew back and you landed in California, but then to be, to get out of the Army, you had to go to Fort Benning. Yeah. And this Georgia. is a town in Columbus. And it happened to be that I was there my year between undergraduate and graduate school in 1967. Uh-huh. I happened to be uh, in Columbus, Georgia. And I would go play wow. tennis over at Fort Benning. And they didn't ask oh, me, what are you doing here? No and um And oh, wow. I actually saw John Wayne there. He was making the movie Green Berets. Uh, yeah, and, he was uh, filming
0: it when I was there. I yeah. saw him do Right,
1: right. Yeah. That's so uh, funny. And, uh, so that was John Wayne's view of the war. Oh, yeah. So yeah. you, um, it was kind of sad that you were going to get out um, and it was close to Christmas time, and you thought, boy, I'd really right. like to get out in time to spend the sure. holidays with my family. Did you get to spend Absolutely. Christmas in California?
0: Yeah, but you know what? I got drafted June 4th, and if I would have got drafted June 3rd, they would let me out two weeks early to celebrate the holidays with my home and family, and I couldn't. So there I am in a barracks. It's cold. It's raining, you know, and nobody's around, and i'm just sitting around twiddling my thumb counting the days to get out and then of course you fly home it's january 3rd i got out and everybody in the world is trying to fly back from christmas vacation and i'm waiting for a standby flight so i got stuck in atlanta georgia and i had to transfer to st louis missouri finally i get to la it took a day and a half to get there and uh, you know, I, I didn't realize that, you know, in Vietnam, you're eating dehydrated potatoes and reconstituted this and all this, you know, the food wasn't great. It was a GI mess holes. But then when I was in Georgia for five and a half months, I was working in the hospital. Well, I could eat like a god. And I thought my clothes were shrinking. I thought, well, I've sent <laughs> into the, to the laundry and they're shrinking. They don't fit me. <laughs> I get home and people say, Oh my God, I never thought I'd see the day you got fat because I gained 50 pounds in five and a half months.
1: <laughs> well, your photograph on the cover, your face is pretty full there, Phil.
0: You know, it look a lot <laughs> like you look today yeah yeah you know but you know I, I i made up for it because i was running around uh, quite a bit when i got home and i lost 35 pounds in a few months you know just going out every night and making up for lost time and and people thought how'd you lose all that weight i thought i don't know i'm not eating army food i guess i'm not in the hospital eating army food i don't know but but you know I, I found out once you gain weight uh as you get older it's not that easy to lose it so you know, it'll come back if you're not careful, if you're not exercising and talking.
1: <laughs> I introduced you as a Vietnam veteran, a salsa maker. Right. Uh, you're also a musician. You teach guitar lessons. Yes, I But do. you were also a father, and that role started, you were quite young. In fact, oh. um too young, really, to be a father. So what did you do? How did you happen to become a father at such a young age, Bill? Well,
0: my girlfriend i met her she was 16 i was 17 i was in wilson high school and you know you're young and full of hormones and you can't keep your hands off each other and back then you know this was 1965 64. birth control pills were not that readily available so she got pregnant and you know she was a young girl and i was a young guy and What you did back then, I don't know if it happened so much today, is you put the baby up for adoption. And so we did that. And of course, she never forgave me for that. And eventually, 35 years later, I was able to find him with the Internet. And he was in, guess where? East L.A. (laughs) And he speaks Spanish. And he's just, uh, you know, this young man. I first met him. He's thirty-five years old.
1: And well, you have a photograph of him in your book, Phil. Oh, yeah. And he's a handsome guy. He was in, yeah. he black hair, and mm-hmm. and I could see he looked
0: like you. He resembled you. I thought. Well, yeah, I guess he did. You know, I I didn't see him as a child. I met him when he was a full-grown man, and uh, after thirty-five yeah, years, yeah, thirty-five years old. I was, uh, I guess, fifty-three, and I, 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 I thought we we're going to make up for lost time. And I can't wait to maybe send him up to Chico and, you know, get him involved in the community here and, and make up for lost time. And he could meet his other three younger siblings. And when my son that I had when I was married, he was uh, he always thought he was the oldest. And Then he found out this other boy was his oldest. and That was weird for him. But turned out uh, his mother, his adopted mother, had been married five times. And the last thing he needed was another father figure so we never did get to make up you know i, I met him a couple of times i you know hear from him on christmas and the birthdays and talk to him on the phone and text but you know uh now i think uh he's approaching uh, 60 years old i guess he's born in 1965 so he's you know 50 something and, and I, I I I thought uh, you know we were going to really be a, a bonding relationship, but no, no, he lives because sometimes so I, that
1: happens. Adoptive uh, children and meet their uh, birth parent, right. and it works out nicely. But uh, yeah, I, it wasn't what you had hoped it would be.
0: No, as a matter of fact, I went to a lot of different support groups for adoptees. What they call a triad: but the adopted parents, the uh, the parents, the birth parents, and the, the adoptee. And they all thought that's a fantastic. A father looking for his adopted son. That's fantastic. And, you know, I was kind of expecting him to feel that way, but no. So I find, you know, it's been 20-some years since, uh, 22 years when I found him. And now I realize, okay, all right. Uh, I, you know, we're just, he calls me Phil. And I'm, I'm a friend. And, you know, I I... I accept it. It's okay. He's happy. He's healthy. You know, and yeah, you know, I, I I'm glad I was able to find him. The worst thing would have been not able to be able to find him. And I would think, oh, he's out there. As a matter of fact, they had a sister that was adopted. And she said, Oh, I wish you were my father. I always pray that my father would come find me. And but my my birth son, he he doesn't feel that way. So it's okay. I, I accept it. I, well, I have now, children. you
1: children. You, um... You grew up in L.A., and that's where your adoptive son, you found him. But you live in Chico. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine, and uh, one thing I think that's valuable about your book, Phil, is it raises questions about our assumptions. For example, some people may think, well, I none of my family went to Vietnam. I don't know anything about PTSD. This doesn't really relate to me. But I was talking to this friend of mine who's a psychotherapist. And I said, uh, do you have clients who have PTSD? And she said, yes. And I learned that her husband, I didn't know this before, he was from Southern California, he went to Vietnam, so he had a GI Bill to attend college. So he came from Southern California to Chico to attend college, and he built a house in Forest Ranch. <sighs> and so I thought, my gosh, these people who have these experiences are people I know, but I don't right. know because because they don't talk about it. That's another reason I appreciated your book, because you not only tell us what happened to you you tell us your thought processes and how you were feeling as you were having these experiences so i wasn't it was, aware of it yeah yeah that's what you said a lot of people guys have ptsd no. and they don't no. even realize that they do
0: no 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 they don't know and people think there's something you know what's wrong with him? what's wrong with this guy why isn't he you know doing what we expect him to do right why, why is he losing jobs why is he having breakups why is he getting in trouble? Why is he using drugs? Why is he alcohol using an alcohol? And, you know, I, I, what helped me was I started seeing a shrink right away. Actually, in 1968, first time I started seeing a shrink. And uh, I have seen different shrink throughout the years. And even today, I still see a shrink. Dealing with depression, anxiety, uh, confusion, uh, pain, you know, uh, regret and and you know difficulties well, so you know, I, i've lost a lot of jobs i got fired <laughs>
1: that's why i think your book is valuable uh because you can shed some light on situations that we may be experiencing with friends or even family and we don't understand what's what's with this person why are they like this so right. you um you uh find
0: yourself in Chico. And why did you come to Chico, Phil? Well, you see, when I was a hippie, I got in my Volkswagen van and drove all the way up to Canada and met people all the way along the way from San Francisco, Eugene, Oregon, Seattle, and Washington, rather, uh, Vancouver, British Columbia. And I thought, wow, that's so beautiful up here. I gotta move up here. I told my brother, Bob, who's 10 years older than me, my oldest brother, and he got a job at Chico State teaching education. And so he said, come on up, move up here. And that was 1975, I did move up here. And he had just left because he went through a divorce. But uh, I had a two-year-old son named Josh and my first wife, and and, well, we broke up. And I didn't want to leave my son, So I stayed in Chico all these years and wound up getting involved with different jobs. I I was a manager at Chico Nacho Foods for a while. I worked at Chico High School, running the English Resource Library, and then I started making salsa, Senor Felipe Salsa. And it's sold everywhere, like hotcakes, all, every natural food store across the country.
1: And you tell us in the book, that was a result of your being the manager at Chico Natural Foods, and you were at yes. the cash register, and you saw, hmm, salsa sells really well. <laughs> but it's uh, it's not a good quality. I can make better salsa. Oh, yeah. And so that launched your career as a salsa maker. <laughs> it
0: did. It did, you know, but I have a BA in sociology. I wasn't a business person. And, you know, I figured it out later, but you got to hustle. You got to make contacts. You got to get the contrib- distribute. You got to get the financing. You got to get the equipment. And, you know, I was a single father raising three kids and working part time and then making salsa. And, you, you know, I, I guess you got to really know how to make a business succeed. And I was struggling with depression and anxiety. And I got calls. I couldn't answer the phone. Hey, can you send me 400 cases of mild enchilada sauce by Tuesday? And that meant I'm working 14 hours a day, seven days a week with people that wanted a job, but that didn't mean they want to work. So Mm -hmm. then the money and the equipment and the insurance companies and the health department. And finally, you know, I I was just overwhelmed with the exhaustion. Anyway, so...
1: Yeah, yeah you mentioned that um you had a degree in sociology you got a degree in sociology but then you saw this um I guess it, well, you might call it an ad for this scholarship on this island Greek island mm-hmm. now right. that sounds like that's
0: interesting and
1: <laughs> and uh what became of that scholarship on the Greek island Phil
0: <laughs> it was called Schiller college I found out when I got there it took me couple days to get there because I had to get a standby flight and land in Amsterdam and then I had to take a bus across Europe to get degrees to and when I got there there was two guys my age 32 years old and there were five students 18 years old. And well they, now uh,
1: well, I think the lure too was that um, you like creative writing you like to write right. and right. so here's yeah. your chance Bill? Yeah. Isn't that what they said you would be doing on the scholarship? You would be
0: writing? <laughs> that was the idea. But what first thing they wanted us to do was learn the Greek alphabet. <clears throat> and I thought, I have hard enough time with the English alphabet. I'm going <laughs> to learn the Greek alphabet. And everybody was young. And I, I saw, oh, God, it's, it's a scam. These, you know, they, they gave me a scholarship, a halfway and I had to pay the other half. Was, I think it was a $1,200 dollars. And I had to pay mm. half and I had to fly there and find a place to stay. So I stayed a week or two. And then I said, nah, this ain't for me. And I left. I asked for a, a refund. They gave me $300 back.
1: <laughs> and that wasn't <laughs> easy to get the money back oh, because no, they, didn't that, they didn't want to do that. They didn't
0: want to do that because, you know, and the one other guy, his name was Hermes. And he was actually a Greek from America. And he just left without any refund at all <laughs> so they didn't want everybody to just leave so i'm lucky i got what i got and i thought okay well i'm in this part of the country let's see what israel looks like you know because i you know i hear about okay let's see what a country is like where you know jews are running it so it took me a couple of days on a freighter on a boat and i got there and, and then i talk i write about that too what it was like for me in that book
1: I'll give the title of your book again, Phil, Uh, the author's Phil Elkins, and the book is Coming Home from the War in Vietnam. And right now, you've made it to this island, this Greek island, when kind of under false uh, lure. And you say, okay, now what do I do? Well, I think I'll go to Israel. So there yeah. you are.
0: <laughs> and It was interesting. You know, I mean, I felt bad because I promised my son we're going to travel around the country in my Volkswagen van. And instead, I got this, it seemed like too good to pass up scholarship. And I thought, OK, I'll go there. And when I, you know, when I got there, it was so interesting because, you know, it's hot. It was summertime. And I'm trying to figure out where I'm going, where I'm going to stay. Every, You know, when you're traveling, where are you going to stay? Where are you going to eat? You know, what things cost, the money exchange and all that. And so I'm asking somebody a question and and they didn't speak English and they walked away. And I'm standing there thinking, what am I doing here? And this lady from across the street says, excuse me, would you like a glass of water? I said, oh, yeah, sure. Uh, Come on in. And she would you, are you hungry? Do you need a place to stay? Well, it turns out this was a, a German couple from Germany named Gretchen and Hans, and they felt terrible about what happened to the Jews. And they're from Germany. So half the time they lived in this place in Israel on the coast called Naharia. And, uh, and they wanted me to stay there. And matter of fact, they wanted me to meet one of their friends, they, their girlfriend named Crystal. And they says, oh, she's so beautiful. You're gonna love her. Phil, you gotta stay, you gotta, you gotta meet her. Meantime, I'm ready to go home because I've been on the road for two months. And, you know, every day, you know, where am I going to stay? What am I going to do? What what about money? And so they kept saying, please, please, you got to meet her. And she's so beautiful. And I said, how old is she? 17. I thought, oh, my God,
1: I'm 32.
0: (laughs) They said, well, she's from Russia. They don't care. You know, they they marry older men. And I thought, yeah, but 17? And what about money? What am I going to do? And so and they were very crazy.
1: insistent, Phil. They kept on and on. One, oh, you've got to meet Crystal. You've got oh, to meet I her. Did. So, meanwhile, <laughs> you have an adventure though that was uh, brought you to tears when you went to Jerusalem. And what brought tears to your eyes, Phil? What moved you to tears? You what, went to a museum. Israel? You oh, went. Museum. You went to a museum. Oh, oh, a very oh, special yeah. museum.
0: Oh, Badashem. It's this museum about the Holocaust. Oh my God, they got the pictures up there. They even had this bullet glass cage that one of the Nazis was being tried for. I can't, can't believe I can't think of his name right now. And and they, the one that was just blew my mind is this mother, young mother holding her infant. And this Nazi is holding a rifle up to her head they didn't want to waste two bullets, so he shot her. Her through the head and the baby. And oh my God, and I just realized, oh my God, if my grandfather and my mom and dad didn't come here when they did to immigrate to the United States, I, I would have been one of those people. As a matter of fact, my grandfather went back to Ukraine and he could never come back here. And he told the Ukrainian people, in the, what he called Russia, that look, I got five kids in America. And they said, we don't care. You're not a citizen. You don't get to go back. So my father would send them food and tickets and money, and he could never come back. And I asked my father, what do you think happened to his father, my grandfather? who Incidentally, looks a lot like me. And my father said, "He probably wound up in the bake ovens. And uh, he never could come back. So when I saw Badr probably not pronouncing it right, but, oh, it moved me so much. It's So much, I thought, oh my God, how could people do this to each other? How can they do this? That's and so
1: much. So I wondered that very same thing when I see those pictures, Phil. I, I wonder how can humans do that to other human beings? It's yeah, just exactly. so
0: heartbreaking. Slaughter by the millions, by the millions. And, you know, I never had that much identity about being Jewish growing up in East LA. You know, and. and and suddenly I just feel it right through my bones. It's like, oh my God, what? Well, how could this happen? So, you know, it was a moving experience for me to go to Israel and Well, I,
1: and then you ran into some trouble who uh Palestinians oh. are saying, Hey, what are you what are you doing taking over our country?
0: Yeah, yeah. Um these German couple, Hans and Gretchen, said, Look, let's go to this restaurant. It happens to be you know, a Palestinian restaurant, and I met the owner, and he invited us over to his house, which was in the West Bank, and that's the occupied part of Israel that the Palestinians claim as their land. And so, I go there, and we're eating, and up comes the subject that I'm Jewish, and so he says, "But you people stole our land." I said, "Well, the Jews were always here; they've always been here." you know, and there are 40 some other Muslim countries. This is a little tiny Israel. Yeah, but you stole our hat. And, you know, I tried not to get into an argument with him, but he kept at it for quite a while. And that's when I finally realized, um, I think it's time for me to go home. And I went home soon after that, which in itself was a journey, because I had to get a standby flight and all that. But, yeah, it was... uh, tense. There's a lot of tension there and there still is. <clears throat> and uh, I, 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 I'm glad I saw it, but I'm glad I'm where I am now. And, you know, I, I was thinking, you know, m- my kids would have to grow up in that and have to, you know, worry about more. Phil and I will be back to continue
1: our conversation after a break. You're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm Nancy Wigman. Nancy Wigman, and you're listening to Nancy's bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm back with author and radio host Philip Elkins. His third book is Coming Home from the War in Vietnam. He describes a trip he made and went to various countries. In fact, you, you did a lot of traveling in all of the United States, Europe, yes. Israel. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and meanwhile, you're a single dad. Right. Five children. Mm-hmm. And uh, you were very conscientious. You your son Joshua, you were just saying when you were traveling, you thought, gosh, I had told him uh, he and I would travel together. Mm-hmm. And here I right. am away from him. Right. And so that was um that, that was, was hard for you. That.
0: Yeah. To be it was. away from your son. That's probably why I didn't meet Crystal. Hans and Gretchen wanted me to meet their friend, who's this is a beautiful girl. And I thought, okay, what if I fall in love with her? What am I going to do? You know, am I going to want to stay? And my home is in California. My my son is there. I I I, I, I just I felt too bad, too guilty to uh, to stay. But you know, then I often thought, mm, wonder what would happen. <laughs> Instead, <clears throat> I got involved in these other relationships, who were less than successful.
1: <laughs> well, now you just more- mentioned that that all these relationships that were. As you just said, less than successful, and um, you, one of your therapists, Phil said, Phil, you need to make a checklist because it seemed like as we were reading your story, there was one item that you considered when you were looking at a girl and uh, or a relationship. It was there was just one. Mm, she's got long blonde hair
0: and a nice <laughs>
1: figure, so <laughs> she's the one for me.
0: Yeah. And
1: this um, therapist, as I understood it, said, Bill, you need to make yourself a quality control checklist that includes more than just what she looks like.
0: Exactly. Exactly. And I didn't know what you and- are talking about, you know. And, and he would ask me every week, did you make your list? Did you make your list? I said, no, no, no. He said, well, what are the top three, four, or five things you absolutely have to have in a relationship? And I thought about it, and I thought about it. and I realized I want them to be nice. I've been with some people that weren't nice. I want to like them. I I want them to have some brain, some education. And, you know, then then he said, well, you got to make a list of what you like, what you would like, but are not necessary, and what you absolutely do not want. And so I put together a quality control checklist. And, you know, after being in these different relationships, some...
1: In fact, as a reader, I lost count, Phil. You were with so many different women. (laughs) Some of them you married, some of them you didn't. And uh, So uh, I thought, yeah, that therapist had the right idea. Phil needs to consider other things in a relationship than just looks.
0: (laughs) Well, you know, most men, you know, I've read I don't know if it's true or not, but I've said this to different people. The men are looking for youth and beauty and women looking for a sense of humor. And resources, you know, and I said well, that too.
1: T- it did give us insight, those of us of the other gender, it gave us some insights. Oh, so that's what's going on in a man's mind. Because you're very uh, clear about, hmm, about what your thinking was in uh, yeah. yeah. these different, well, throughout the book. uh uh-huh. That brings to mind, Phil, uh, a woman that you meet, because all most of the women you meet, they didn't even ask about your your time no. in Vietnam or all your time with that. But there was one woman who said, "Phil, I'm proud of you oh. for what you did."
0: Oh, and yeah. uh, tell us about Tricia. How
1: did you okay. meet Tricia? Well,
0: after going through a second divorce, I thought, you know what. What's the chance of just running into somebody at the right time, the right place, they're the right people? They're both looking for the right, the same thing. What's the chance? You go to the bars, you know, and all you see is how they look. Oh, look, they look good. Or the way they're dressed or how, they, you know, how pretty their faces are or their hair, whatever. But so this was 20 some years ago. And AOL had love at AOL. Free dating site. That hell, I'll put that up there. You know, and I thought, better not use my real name because I just went through a divorce. And people at that time might have thought, well, using a dating site is like an act of desperation. So I I said, uh, I lived in Reading and not Chico. And I used my name Chazcat instead of Phil. And, you know, and then uh, lo and behold, there was this lady up in Alturas. And uh, which I don't identify the town or her name or anything. and. And she answered my ad, and it was obviously she was very intelligent. Well, it turned out she was a marriage and family therapist, and she w- wanted to meet me, but well, she didn't have any pictures. So I said, "Well, send me a picture." So she sent me a couple of pictures of Polaroids. And back then, you know, you didn't have like a, you could just send a picture on the internet, and and you know, I thought, okay, well, I said, "Are you really six foot tall?" <laughs> She said, yeah, you got a problem with that. (laughs) I said, no, but most women want the guy who's taller than them. He says, I can't worry about that. I live in a small town. I could be going out with my relatives (laughs) or my clients. So she came, we met, we really liked each other and she was very intelligent and turned out she'd been in the army. She went to the army for four years to get the GI Bill, which is how she got her master's degree in marriage and family counseling. And uh, we did fantastic. She, you know, uh, because you learn about each other online: what you want, who you are, what you do, you know, what you're looking for. And if you meet somebody in a bar, you don't know any of that. So, she moved down here. She was offered a job, and uh, she got to run a, a site here, running with 35 people. She was supervising them all, and uh, we were together 16 years, and she.
1: And and notice
0: yeah. you just
1: said we were together 16 years because right. mm-hmm. we're thinking, we're reading along and said, oh gosh, this this woman is just wonderful. Here oh, yeah, finally, was. finally, yeah. Phil finally has found true, true, true. love and a, oh. a good relationship, one that's right.
0: good for him. Mm-hmm. And then what happened? Everybody loved her. My children loved her. You know, I asked my daughters once what they thought of her. And they said, she's an absolutely amazing woman. <laughs> and the other one said I, she's she's more than a, a, a mother figure she, she's a role model and and I thought well this is good this is good so we bought a house together up in Forest Ranch and lived together and she worked in Chico and uh, I thought this is it for the rest of our lives she's a great lady and lo and behold she developed a lump And they out not with cancer. And so she got chemotherapy, radiation, and surgery. And they said, OK, you're cancer-free. Go home and heal. And she went back up to be with her sisters while she healed. And she dropped over and bled to death in three minutes. It turns out, uh, radiation... Makes your blood vessels very brittle, and evidently they burst, and she bled to death before the ambulance got there. (laughs) And now it's four years old. So, uh And you mentioned
1: before you lost your best friend Alex. You had been friends when you were. Children and right. um, mm-hmm. he still lived in Southern California. And right. his death was unexpected. I mean, he goes in for something that's kind of routine right. surgery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It was and a minor, you get minor word that mm-hmm. your dear friend Alex right. died. Right. And the hospital, tried to make up some other reason for it, but uh, no,
0: no, they, they, he was. They kept lancing. Uh, he had an abscess rectum, and they kept lancing in the office. And he said, "We got to put you under." So they put over under an LA County General Hospital, which is real close to where we grew up. And uh, evidently they inserted respirator improperly and he died of asphyxiation at 33 years old. And uh, of course, they did. They, they, they,
1: so you have these experiences that we're reading along and we thought, right. oh my gosh, I mean, we I, I, as a reader, Never saw that coming. No. These things that happened to you. But from these experiences, you have learned a lot. And just in a nutshell, Phil, what knowledge, what have you learned to pass on to us from your well, experiences?
0: Right, right. You, you really have to appreciate each and every day, even little simple things like taking a walk or having a conversation or a decent meal or a decent night's sleep or a friend. You got to appreciate. Each day, each day, and each person that loves you, because when they die, (coughs) excuse me, when they die, they're gone forever, you know, at least except in your head, you know, you got all these memories and you look back and be, oh, damn, why didn't didn't I spend more time with them? Why didn't I appreciate it more? So I learned that uh, you can't give up, you got to keep going. You know, I got all these people that I've known that are gone. You know, not just my mother and father, but best friend and girlfriends, and uh, uh, these other people. You know, I mean, at the age I am, they're they're dying, uh, and it's like, okay, well, you're lucky we're still here. Appreciate what you got, enjoy each day, and make the most of it. And and don't give up. You can't. You can't. You can't let it get you down. You know, I mean, if you're struggling with something, depression, anxiety.
1: Because you had those periods in your life when you were down to the point oh, that you yeah. think, oh, I don't want to live anymore. Oh, yeah, yeah. But yeah. you I, have this lovely advice for the rest of us, the readers of your book. Uh, and
0: uh, I want to thank you for writing this book, Phil. Oh, I'm so glad that you liked it and that I was able to put it together and have it published and, you know... uh
1: So let me remind listeners again, the title of your book, the author is Philip Elkins, and the title of the book is Coming Home from the War in Vietnam. Thank you, Phil.
0: Oh, thank you, Nancy. You've been terrific. I really appreciate what you do. You do a terrific job, and I'm so grateful. You've been listening to Nancy's Bookshelf, Production of North State Public Radio. You can find this and other episodes of Nancy's Bookshelf on our website, mynspr.org.